Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The words will be up there on the screen in back of me, and we'll get there in just a minute. I don't know if you've noticed this, but nobody wants to hear about your great summer vacation. It's true. I mean, if you've had a great summer vacation, when you come back, you've got to keep it short and sweet. Too many specifics, you'll find people uh, slowly uh, nodding, politely smiling, and eventually they will tune you out. But strangely, strangely, we all kind of like hearing about a bad vacation, don't we? I mean, we, we, we lean in, we listen, we like to hear details and specifics, we laugh because we've learned that life doesn't always go the way that we expect it, even on vacation. Take, for example, our trip to St. Louis back in 2017. So my wife and I, we've got four kids, so it's always uh, something we eagerly anticipate when we can go on vacation together. So we were looking forward to seeing, you know, the arch and the six flags and the zoo and all of those kinds of things. So we packed our van. We were ready. We set out, but it only took about a half an hour before our van broke down. We were stranded on the side of the road. I'm not even sure what it was. I think I blocked that out. But it was like a 95-degree day, so just sweating buckets as we were waiting there, just on the phone, trying to get a tow truck and trying to call a friend to get some help. And and finally, one of our friends was able to come with their van and actually loan their van for us to use on our vacation. So we spent a lot of time getting all of our stuff out of our van into that van, and finally, after a few hours, we were back on the road. So we were headed to St. Louis, Uh, took a while to get there, a lot of stops, Uh, you know how it is, families, and we finally made it there, strolled in at about midnight, so we were exhausted, and just to preface where we were going, so we wanted to find a spot that was really in close proximity to Six Flags, so that we could save uh, on on parking, I know we're kind of cheap, and so we found this place, no lie, this was the name of the place, it was Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park. Now, that, that should have clued us in uh, that maybe uh, that's not going to work out too well. It kind of sounds something like Chevy Chase's vacation you know, spot. Uh, but my wife, my wife booked uh, all of that. And um, she also looked online, not to throw her under the bus. Um, she also looked online. She was trying to save us money. Appreciate that about her. Um, as she was looking online, she, she noticed there were cabins and then there were cottages. So we did the upgrade to the cottage, or so we thought. <laughs> so we got there at midnight. We're all really, really tired. We open up the door to our resort cottage, and we're just met with just this massive like smell, just kind of this moist, you know, stinky camp smell. And so that was, that was not the worst part. This place was small. I mean, this was like really, really small. Evidently, uh, the people that made the website for Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park had a phenomenal photographer because this room (laughs) looked so much better online than it did in person. So I'm just going to be real here. We all just had a meltdown. 
me included. Like I unraveled in the moment and I was like, we've got to go to a hotel. We're not going to stay here. And I have to hand it to my wife. She was the strong one in the moment. She was like, we can do this. We're going to do this. And so we did. We, we stayed in this little cracker box of a resort cottage and we barely got any sleep that night. The next morning we wake up and we're pumped as much as you can be on not very much sleep to go to Six Flags. So Remember, this was in close proximity to Six Flags. In fact, it said on the website, within walking distance of Six Flags. So we're, we're looking around, right, for the walking trail to get to Six Flags, and we could not find one. So we knocked on the door of the front desk, um, asked the lady, so, hey, where's the, where's the trail, the path, you know, to get to Six Flags? It's, you know, within walking distance. And she was like, there's no walking path. Like, what? what? It said that was, it's within walking distance. She was like, yeah, well, you can, um, you know, make your way out to, like, the highway there on the side of the road, and you can walk. It's about a mile and a half uh, to get there. <laughs> so we were like, okay, I guess. So, you know, to save a buck, we, we went ahead and did that. As we were on the side of the road, cars were just whizzing by us, and we looked like a bunch of hillbillies, but that was the vacation of 2017. Life doesn't always turn out the way we expected it to, and sometimes it happens even on vacation. Now, more than any other book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes drives that point home. It gives us an honest look at life with no spin whatsoever, and it reminds us that there are no guarantees that life is going to go well. In fact, a lot of times, it's disappointing. It's not fair, and it doesn't really make sense. There's a Hebrew word that sums up all of that, and that word is hevel. The word hevel is repeated 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the theme of the book. This word is somewhat hard to define. Sometimes it's translated as meaningless or vanity. Literally, it means vapor. And so maybe when you were a kid, you looked up at the sky and you saw these soft, fluffy white clouds, and you thought about how cool it would be to, to sit on them and to jump on the clouds, only to discover as an adult, you know, you're flying in a plane, you whiz by, and these clouds are basically made of water droplets and air. There's no substance there. It's just nothing. That's hevel. It's empty. It's futile. It's meaningless. That's what life is often like. And worse yet, life is outside of your control. You and I don't get to decide what life hands us. At times, it feels like a crapshoot. And in the end, we're going to die and face judgment. That's the essence of Ecclesiastes. Kind of a Debbie Downer, I know. But listen, once that sets in, listen, once that truth sets in, once we're awakened to that reality, we have a choice. Ecclesiastes gives us two options. One, we can escape from life, or two, we can engage with God. We can either escape from life or engage with God. Now, at some point in your life, you're going to be tempted to escape. You will. We just want to get away. We want to flee reality in some form of another. Because in the moment, we think that it's the only way we're going to cope with the difficulties and demands of life. And yet it always leaves us wanting. In Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to see three common ways we try to escape. So let me read verses 8 to 10. This is the word of God. Better is the end of a thing 
than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So the first escape here we see is impatience. Verse 8 says again, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So the end of the thing refers to the final outcome or the end product. And when we're at the beginning of a hard season or even in the middle of it, we just want to hurry it along because it hurts so much. We get angry, we get anxious, we get afraid, we just want answers now. It's like we want to get to the happy ending without going through everything in between. Notice how the author compares the patient in spirit with the proud in spirit. While the patient in spirit waits for life to unfold and trusts that God will provide, the proud in spirit wants to rush to the end and get to the answer quickly. It's like the comedian that uh, pointed out how Google used to be so patient with us. You type something in the search bar, it'll wait till you're done, and then it'll show you all the links and all the information. But somewhere along the line, things changed. Now Google will never let you finish. You type in the letter P, and it's like, Pacific Ocean? Is it Pacific Ocean? Is it Pacifier? Is it Pack Red? Is it Peanuts? What is it? Tell me what it is right now. I can't wait anymore. And that's exactly how we can be with God. We, we auto-suggest God's next move for our lives. So we keep interrupting him, trying to get to the ending before he's done typing. But it's understandable. It's hard to be patient when you're in the middle of a painful journey. You're, you're bound to feel the effects of that pain and want to know why it's happening and when it's going to be all over with. But we have to understand that God isn't finished yet. It's not the end of the story. So we get impatient, we, we try to rush, we try to escape, and the impatience can well up and grow into full-blown anger and resentment. And that's the second escape we see in verse 9. Look there with me. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. So anger is an interesting emotion, isn't it? It's an emotion that communicates that something has gotten in the way of what we want it. If you could imagine that, that life is like this movement toward a goal, you know, and we had this expectation that we're going to re- receive the good life at the end of that, when all of a sudden, a detour is in the way, maybe a trial of some kind, and we get frustrated, we can't believe it, so instantly we're perceiving it to be wrong and unjust. We may even mutter to ourselves, it's not fair. Just like impatience, anger is always in a hurry. It always wants control, so it tries to exert power. It tries to exert power because it hates being vulnerable and weak. And yet underneath it all, we often feel weak. There are layers of of grief and hurt that we haven't dealt with. And if we don't deal with it, anger can lodge, lodges in the innermost parts of who we are. becomes so attached to us, it feels like a friend. But listen, sometimes anger gets a bad rap. Not all anger is sinful anger. There is a righteous anger that is permeated by a deep sadness over the injustices of this world. 
And we, we struggle inside with God. We, we grieve at these injustices. Whatever happened, it just doesn't seem to make sense. And for some of you, this is personal. You could be doing something so right and receive something so wrong. Ecclesiastes 8.14 says, There is something else meaningless, there's our word hevel, that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Sometimes, guys, life hands us something that seems so absurd. Feels like all hevel has broken loose. And we're left with a lot of frustrations and a lot of questions. Why? Why did that happen? And why can't things go back to what they used to be? Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So this is the third escape. It's nostalgia. Nostalgia. This one seems different, kind of disconnected from the other two at first glance. And yet, notice the, tra- the, the thought that the author is tracing here. Impatience says, I wish my life was different and I could control what's happening. Anger says, my life hasn't gone the way I wanted and I deserve better. And nostalgia says, I can't deal with the present, so I'm going back to the past where life was easier. And all of these are ways of escape from real life. But nostalgia seems so innocent, right? I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, who doesn't look back at the good old days, right? The the glory days. I mean, who among us doesn't enjoy, once in a while, Facebook memories, right? (laughs) On this day eight years ago, and for just a moment, we're transported back to when life seemed to be so simple and so much easier, Others of us, when the beginning notes or lyrics of a song come on, and we're all of a sudden lifted back instantly to the 80s and 90s. Can you resonate, some of you, (laughs) with me? Where life seemed more carefree and fun. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with nostalgia? But the verse says this, it's not from wisdom that you go there. What he's saying is that nostalgia tries to trick you into thinking that the past was more amazing than it really was. It has a way of intensifying your emotions and your longings, but it always leaves out the things it was lacking. It's bittersweet. And so that's where all of these escapes will eventually leave us. We'll find ourselves empty and lacking. And yet Ecclesiastes says there's another option, there's another way. When disappointment sets in and the cycle of hevel continues to frustrate us, we don't have to escape from life. We can engage with God. God wants to meet us right there, right in the messes and the mysteries of life. He wants us to bring all of that to Him, to engage with Him, to wrestle with Him, to grieve with Him, and to slowly trust Him again. Guys, our conflict with God can actually be an opportunity for deeper connection with God if we humbly engage with God. So what does it look like to engage with God? Three things. One, we wrestle with God's providence. Two, we grieve in God's presence. And three, we trust in God's promises. So let's take them one at a time. 
First, we wrestle with God's providence. Look at verses 13 to 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So when it seems like everything is crooked in our lives, we are told to consider the work of God. When times of prosperity come, when times of adversity come, we're told to consider that God has made them both. So that verb is repeated twice for emphasis. What does it mean? Consider means to pay attention to, to slow down, to ponder, to meditate on. In other words, we don't just run from the tough stuff in life. We consider it. We look for God in it. We pay attention to his providence. And we admit we cannot know what God knows. We cannot do what God does. As the text says, we can't fix what is broken in the world. We can't make straight what he has made crooked. Because we're not God and that's actually a really good thing. So we're told, though, to consider, to consider his providence, to wrestle with it, to ponder it. Now, the word providence is built from the word provide. In Latin, pro means on behalf of, and vide means to see. So provide means to see on behalf of or to see to it. So God's providence means that he will see to it, that things will happen in a certain way for your good. He will see to it. He will provide. Essentially then, it's out of our hands. So we need to stop expending so much energy trying to fix it or control it because God will see to it. Now that's true. But it can often sound kind of trite in the ears of a hurting person. So many Christians have good intentions, but end up hurting other Christians by spiritually bypassing them. Spiritual spiritual bypassing is when we sidestep a person's suffering by offering packaged Christian answers so we can avoid entering into their pain. Let me say that again. Spiritual bypassing is when we sidestep a person's suffering by offering packaged Christian answers so we can avoid entering into their pain. Most of us have done this without even knowing it. I mean, we see someone who's hurting, and we, we try to tie up everything in a nice, neat bow, because it, make it makes us feel better. And we, we try to make sense of things that don't make sense. You know why? Because we're afraid of actually saying, this doesn't make sense. This was horrible that this happened to you. Now, is there a place for God's truth in our pain? Yes. Absolutely, but, but listen, so many people right now are in the middle of their story and they need to wrestle with God's providence in the midst of their pain. They're, they're less like Joseph at the end of the story when he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and they are more like Naomi in the middle of her story when she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I love how Rebecca Davis points this out, that in the middle of the story, It's not a time for judgment. It's a time for tears. She writes, When someone is in the middle of the story, she might just need to cry and weep bitter tears. And she might need someone nearby who can hold out hope in the goodness of God without judging her. You see, people in pain need to feel seen 
and heard and known and loved. They don't need answers. They don't need solutions. They need empathy and compassion. This is how they begin to see that God is not cold and distant, but personally involved in their story. It's not just that he sees the future or sees the path to get there. He sees you. He knows you. His providence is personal. Listen, every moment he's attentive to your needs. Every moment he's he's attuned to your pain with tenderness and gentleness. He is there always. He will never leave you or forsake you. Never. So to engage with God, we start with wrestling with God's providence. Second, we grieve in God's presence. We grieve. You know, many times we feel stuck in anger because our anger is actually stunted grief, unresolved grief. And we're scared to go there because we feel like if we do, we might be stuck there in that sadness forever. So we, we try to push it down, put on a happy face because we assume it's unhelpful to grief. But once again, angry grief is morally different than selfish anger. It shows us that something or someone really mattered to us. It reveals what we love. It's why we need to pour it out rather than to hold it in. Lamentations 2.19 says, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. I love that. So this is what our heart needs most in times of pain, just to cry it out, to pour it out, to get it out, and to not hold anything back. Love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, we should bring to God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. But listen, this is different than just venting your frustrations. This is getting angry with the Lord. Uh, you're, you're all in with God. This is sincerely grieving in his presence. And he invites you like a good trusted friend. You, you can come to me with that. In fact, he wants to come alongside you with his arm around you and just weep with you. And as you do that, you slowly begin to heal and to grow in wisdom. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 7.4 says. It says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. So when we experience the hevel of this life, our tendency is to want to escape from life. And yet we need to engage with God and enter into the house of mourning where we're going to gain insight and understanding into the thoughts and emotions and beliefs that are present in the rooms of our lives. So here's what I want you to picture today. I picture Jesus just, just standing outside the door of the house of mourning. He's inviting you in to join him. He is not in a rush. He's going to move at your pace as you slowly explore each of these rooms, like the room of sadness and disappointment. There's some of you here in this room, you've experienced so much loss, and you haven't grieved your losses. Jesus is inviting you I am a weeping Messiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I'm with you in that. You can weep with me. 
We move to the room of bitterness and resentment. There's some of you here who've experienced so much injustice in your life, even from the very beginning. Didn't make sense why that happened to you. So much pain. Well, instead of being angry at God, be angry with Him. He hated that when that happened to you. He loves you. The room of fear and anxiety. Some of you, you deal with this with like an undercurrent of anxiety all the time and you walk into this room with Jesus and you feel shame because you're always fearful and, and anxious. He's like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Don't you remember that in my word, whenever I tell you not to fear, I'm backing that with a promise that I am with you. This is a tenderness in your fears and anxieties. It's not shaming you. The room of doubt and confusion just so many questions, so many unknowns. And if you're one with questions and doubts, God welcomes you into this room and says, hey, that's what the Psalms, I mean, there's lots of questions there. It's normal. In the room of, the room of deep hurt and relational pain, this might be the hardest one. So much discouragement, so much brokenness. Some of you, it's in your family. Relational pain. You're not even sure what to do about it. Lingers. Maybe a friend, really, really of a trusted friend hurt you. As we walk into this house, the house of mourning, and explore these rooms, you're going to see that it's pretty messy. There's a lot of broken things that are laying around, a lot of old stuff that's been sitting there for years, sitting in the corners, just forgotten. And just a reminder, the house of mourning has an open floor plan, okay? Um, so that means that the rooms seem to overlap. It's hard to tell where one room starts and another one ends. And as soon as you feel like you're done walking through one of them, you may need to go back into the room again and again and again and again. And that's okay. There is no rush at all. There's no timetable on this. No need to move on from this, but to enter into it and to keep moving through it with Jesus as your friend. Guys, Jesus is a better friend than anger. Do you know that? He is a better friend to you than your anger because he gets anger. He understands it. He doesn't dismiss it or dodge it with an overly optimistic attitude. I mean, think about when his friend Lazarus died. Like, he, he could have showed up at the scene, like, with his, with his cape on, and been like, I'm here. Chin up. Have faith. Everything's going to be great. Now he, come, he comes into town, and with Mary and Martha, he is weeping. The text says he is weeping angry tears in the original language. He's mad, and he's sad at the death of his friend. And so I picture him with his arm around you saying, I am in this with you. I'm not going anywhere. You are not alone. I'm right here. So, instead of escaping from life, we keep engaging with God. We wrestle with God's providence. We grieve in God's presence. And lastly, we trust in God's promises. When life doesn't turn out the way we expected, we, we want to be impatient we get angry and we just want to go back to a place that feels more simple and free. But the hevel of this life, the frustrations of this life, 
is meant to point you forward, not, not backward. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he alludes to the same word where he recognizes the frustration and futility of this fallen world. And he says, right now, presently, all of creation is groaning. And we, as the children of God, are longing and groaning with the creation. What are we groaning for? Not to go back to something. We are groaning for something better that is coming. We are longing for the redemption to be here. We long for the end of the story to get here sooner, when Jesus will return and make all things right, and every tear will be wiped away, and death will be no more. How is that even possible? Well, it's because Jesus entered into the hevel of this world. He entered into the broken, fallen world around us, and all its frustrations and all its injustices, he willingly subjected himself to it, living the life we could never live and dying the death we deserved When you really think about it, it's absurd that Jesus did this for us. In essence, he fulfilled Ecclesiastes 8.14, where it says, there is something meaningless, hevel, that occurs on earth. The righteous, that's Jesus, who get what the wicked, that's you and me, deserve. And the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This is the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or as the apostle Peter put it, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You see, God flipped hevel on its head. Where we were impatient, Jesus was patient, suffering in our place. When we were angry, Jesus took God's full anger at the cross. And when we look back to a better day, Jesus looked ahead to the day for the joy set before him. He endured the cross and scorned the shame so we could experience real and lasting joy forever and ever. So as we close, if you're feeling the frustration, the hevel of this fallen world, Know this, that Jesus felt it too. He understands. He lived it and he died and rose to conquer it. So rather than escape from life, engage with God. Wrestle with him. Grieve with him. And slowly trust him again. He loves you. He is for you. And he's pursuing you even now. Let's pray. Father, we are sometimes confused by what we see in our lives and we wonder why. And yet you are not distant and impersonal. You draw near to us. Jesus, you're our friend who can sympathize and empathize with our weakness. And you enter into the grief because you've felt it yourself. You know what it feels like to be forgotten. You know what it feels like to be in places where people have turned their back on you. You know what it feels like to feel alone, and yet you have come to die the death that we deserved on that cross and to be raised to new life and to offer us a new start. 
a new beginning. And so I pray if there's one today who is just kind of feeling stuck, maybe in anger, maybe in grief, you come very near to them, put your arm around them and say, let's, let's, let's enter the house of mourning together. Lord, thank you that you walk with us so gently, so kindly, so patiently. Help us to do the same for each other, to walk with compassion and gentleness. For we need you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.